Paul writes at the very end of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith and hope and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I don't know if you've uh, heard the phrase um, that things aren't made like they used to. Um, Kenny Rogers, uh, it dates me a bit, but Kenny Rogers once wrote a song called They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. And I'm not an engineer, but I'm told um, that it's true that things are often built now with a built-in obsolescence. They're not manufactured to last Things such as cars, uh, cell phones, um, computer hardware or software. Things are built with a limited life in order to encourage purchasing. But it used to be the case years ago when everything was built to last. Uh, my in-laws um, have farm machinery that is you know, 75 years old that they still try to keep functioning. Even some appliances that they had at their wedding still work. Seems that's less and less the case. Similarly, spiritual gifts were also given to the church with a built-in obsolescence. They were designed to work only for a limited period of time. And that was, they were designed to function until the church eventually reached its maturity. At the coming of Christ, when the church is mature, it will no longer be necessary. That is, those gifts will no longer be necessary. They will pass away into obscurity. However, love will always endure. And this is Paul's main point. Unlike the spiritual gifts that are good, but they're temporary, love will always endure. It's eternal. And Paul brings this issue up in order to deal with the heart problem of the Corinthians. Really the same problem he's been dealing with throughout the book. They were seeking to use spiritual things, in here in particular, their gifts, for worldly and temporal ends. They were using them to um, honor themselves for their own individual recognition and praise versus using them to build up the church. Their focus was on themselves. And that was the root of their problem. These gifts were not designed to exalt individuals, but to build up the church in love. As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the gifts were given so that the body might be built up in love. And like the Corinthians, 
we too might think our significance is tied to our spiritual gifts. Or it could, we could even think that our significance is tied to even less spiritual things. For instance, in the military, significance is found in rank and ribbons. In academia, it could be a, a chair or published works or degrees. For a business, it, men, it would be in paychecks or promotions and leadership positions. Or maybe just getting things done. What, where our significance comes from is what we've experienced or what we've accomplished with our lives. And what Paul wants the Corinthians and us to recognize is that true significance is found in love. Remember at the very beginning of the chapter, he says, if you do anything, even the greatest of acts, but have not love, it's worthless. And then he explained what that love looked like in verses 4 through 7. And in this section, he shows that love is the end as well as the means to what is truly significant. So he said in verses 1 through 3, the means to true significance, to true impact, to true um, value is in loving And here he's saying it's also the end. It's the means and the end to reaching that. Um, In the movie uh, Gladiator, uh, the Gladiator, you know, Russell Crowe's character, Maximus, speaks to his men and he says, Brothers, whatever you do in life will echo into eternity. I think you could, we could take Maximus' words there and just alter them a bit. And I think a biblical statement would be what we do in love and really love alone is what will echo in eternity. And that's really the, 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 this, the, the point of this passage. Love is eternal, unlike everything else. And so often the things that we're so drawn by, we're so captivated by, we're driven by in our life that we're preoccupied with are, we will see one day on eternity's shores, those things are just child's play, insignificant. But what's done in love will last for eternity. So that's his main assertion in verse 8. Love never ends. This, the word ends is the word pipto. And like many of these words in 1 Corinthians 13, it's graphic. It's a really graphic word. It means that which falls apart, that which collapses or falls to the ground. Um, uh, Dan Isaacson was just sharing uh, with me about his trip to Nicaragua. And he was given this task of building this concrete slab. And you'll have to hear the story. It's a pretty remarkable story. But for the sake of my illustration, what he had to do is he had to build this concrete slab. In order to do that, he had to build up a frame. And then the concrete dried. But once the concrete dried, they would take those wooden boards that they used for a frame and they would fall apart. They were no longer necessary because the slab, what they were building, was completed and finished. You were there. You can ask Bryce about it. He'll tell you everything. So... Um, but when they were done, when, the, when what they were building was complete, the frames were no longer necessary. They were obsolete. They fell away. And likewise, such are the spiritual gifts. Prophecy, tongues, miracles are only given to build up the structure of the church. Once the church is built, those gifts are no longer necessary. They have a built-in obsolescence. And that's what Paul expounds on in the next, the rest of the verse, 8b through verse 10. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So in this section right here, Paul highlights three of those gifts that he's already discussed. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. And he tells us all three of these will cease. They'll, they'll pass away. They're no longer going to be necessary. 
The gift of prophecy refers to both foretelling as well as forthtelling, proclaiming God's will. And so it, it refers to direct revelation given by God so that the church might know God's will for them. The gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language. And the gift of knowledge was the ability to understand and explain difficult spiritual truths. And as as magnificent as these gifts are, their weakness was their obsolescence. All three, again, Paul says, will cease. The word he uses, katar egramai, means it will cease to happen. They will cease because prophets, when the perfect comes, will have nothing left to say. When all we know, all we need to know is fully revealed, nothing left needs to be said. To continue to prophesy when there's nothing left to reveal would be like switching on a flashlight in the midst of the noonday sun. Unnecessary. Tongues will be caused to stop. Also, and this doesn't mean that people are going to stop speaking. Of course people are going to continue to speak. But when Christ returns, we will all speak in the same language. So the gift to be able to speak in a different language will no longer be necessary. Notice what uh, the prophet Zephaniah writes in Zephaniah 3.9. He says, For at that time, referring to the culmination of all things, when Christ returns, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So the curse that was established at Babel will be completely reversed and we will all call upon the name of the Lord with one tongue. So the gift of tongues will no longer be necessary. Likewise, knowledge will cease. And I think this is the most striking of all. Even knowledge will cease. You know, does this mean we're no longer going to know anything? Well, no. We will still know. Just the opposite is what it means. We will eventually know everything we have ever wanted to know. So there will be no longer a need for a gift of knowledge because we'll all have that knowledge. Our knowledge will be full. As Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or Jeremiah 31.34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. Our knowledge will be full. As Paul says later, we will know even as we are known. But he says, for now, I know in part, and I prophesy in part. And literally the word part there is the same word that he used earlier in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-seven, When he says, he describes the members or the parts of Christ's body. The word part is the word member. So you see the the tie-in, the individual members, individual parts of Christ's body are gifted to help the rest of Christ's body get built up. So right now there's a partial aspect to the church. Eventually it will be mature. So these gifts, specifically knowledge and prophecy here, are simply meant to be a part of something greater. They're designed for an end. They're not the end, as the Corinthians were thinking of them. They're designed for an end. The end is love. The gifts are designed for love, that the body would be built up in love. And so knowledge and prophecy, they're good now, they're necessary now, because the church hasn't reached maturity. The church is still growing, the church is still bringing people in and the individual members are still maturing in Christ. It's not complete. And so these gifts should continue to be desired 
and could, can, should continue to be longed for, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. One, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So we should still want the gifts, but they'll no longer be necessary once the church has reached maturity. Unlike love, the gifts are limited in their usefulness, but love echoes into eternity. And he says, all this will come to completion when the perfect comes. And this is the crux interpretum of the passage. Our understanding on what Paul's talking about here depends upon what does he mean by the perfect? What is the perfect? One position holds that this refers to the completion of the scriptures. And that they, would, they would understand this to mean that Paul's point is that the miraculous gifts are limited in their usefulness in that once the canon of Scripture is completed, those gifts, particularly the relative, uh, revelatory gifts, will no longer be necessary. And this is the position taken by m- most of my professors at the seminary I attended, uh, John MacArthur included, also Jonathan Edwards. This was his position. The other is the majority view which assert that this is referring to the return of Christ. And this is the view that I hold. Because the completion of Scripture would not mean the completion of the church. And that's what's in Paul's aim. Paul's aim was always, when he thought about maturity, and even when he uses that term, he's thinking about the full development of the church. Moreover, the Bible describes that these gifts will no longer be necessary after Christ returns. We looked at Habakkuk, we looked at Zephaniah and Jeremiah. Those gifts won't be necessary because we'll have complete knowledge. We'll all speak the same language. And prophecy will no longer be necessary. Also, this reference that we will know even as we are known seems to point to the end of time. So I find that the perfect is, is referring to the maturity of the church because I think it's the clearest sense. And if we use Occam's razor, that would support it as well. And the word that he uses for perfect is the word teleos. It's the word that's typically translated mature. It's the word Paul uses in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 when he says that the aim of the church is that they would re- that the church would reach to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so all those gifts are given so that the church might reach manhood maturity teleos paul uses the same word many times throughout his letters and and it, he uses this as the emphasis for which he lives his aim and that is to see the church complete in Colossians 1, 21 to 28. He says, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone teleos, mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so the aim of Paul's life is Not only that every individual would grow up into Christ-likeness, but that the whole church would completely be mature. And that would eventually happen when Christ returns and we all get our resurrected bodies. And until that time, he's pursuing that in all that he does. And those gifts are meant for that end. But once that end is achieved, the gifts are no longer necessary. And so in the next two verses, Paul illustrates the superiority of love in light of this planned obsolescence of the gifts. And he does this by using illustrations of both human maturity and then also a mirror. So the first illustration is that of a mirror. And this illustration is, again, to emphasize the limited usefulness of the gifts. Just as a child needs to be trained in order to develop into an adult. This takes a course of years, takes significant labor from many individuals, not not to mention the individual itself, the child itself. And this is why graduation 
is such a big deal because it's the culmination of years of investment. And likewise, the church needs such investment years as well as multitude of people for it to be built up many years and many laborers. And as a child develops, parents and teachers rely upon various tools to train them and to educate them. They might use board books or phonograms or an abacus just to teach them basic skills. And when those skills are learned, they'll use different tools. And those tools will then be used to learn other things and other skills. And they, the, that growth becomes compounded until that child reaches maturity. But in the process of development, the child is still a child. And we don't expect them to behave like an adult until they do reach that maturity. So, for instance, I give the children uh, of the church challenge questions to uh, fill out as they listen to the sermon. Now, these are questions I ask my kids about later. And when... They give their responses. I'm not expecting really deep responses. I'm expecting the response that a child would give. Likewise, I don't expect adults to answer those questions. To do so might be childish. And this is what Paul means when he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. We expect kids to speak and think and learn and reason as kids. But we expect adults to speak, think, and reason as adults. And it seems that the three words, spoke, thought, and reason, that Paul uses here, are paralleling the three gifts that the Corinthians were so enthralled about. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And so Paul seems to be making a gentle jab with what they're impressed with. These childish things that are meant for development, not for maturity. And so they shouldn't, really, if the Corinthians understood these gifts, they shouldn't be so impressed with their ability to perform a miracle or ability to prophesy any more than a 40-year-old man should be excited that he can answer a children's challenge question. Because it's designed for the immature, not the mature. The child, not the adult. It's not bad. It's not bad to be able to answer the question. If Calvin answers the question, great. But that's not something Calvin should be all that impressed with. It's designed for a kid. And just like a child should appreciate their board books and their abacus and their nursery rhymes, they shouldn't stock up on them so that they can use it when they get to college. They should be advanced past that using different tools. When they're mature, they put away these childish things. And so likewise, when the church develops and reaches maturity, it won't need these gifts. But love will still continue to reside within the church. Now, again, Paul's wanting to get to their heart. He's wanting to motivate them. So how is this motivating? Knowing that the spiritual gifts are going to be falling away, but love never ends. Well, if a person is loving, it means they're living as a mature individual. It means they're living as if they've arrived. As it would be like a child living like an adult beyond their years. So knowing that this is what you're aiming at, love, makes it encouraging because you're experiencing in your spiritual immaturity what you should be experiencing and what you will experience as a mature individual. Likewise, when the church, a local body, loves like this, it's... Even though it's imperfect, it's living as if it was perfect. Like a child living as an adult. And they should be encouraged by that. So likewise, the college professor no longer relies on an abacus and board books. But when a middle school student is able to read a college-level textbook, 
They should be encouraged by that. That's significant. They're advanced. They should be pleased. And likewise, when a person is guided by love, they're truly living as a mature Christian. They're living out what they're supposed to look like in their completion. And so the illustration of verse 11 eliminates, eliminates the limited usefulness of the spiritual gifts in contrast to love that endures. And his illustration of verse 12 illuminates the limited quality of those spiritual gifts in comparison to love. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. And I think Paul here is, again, giving another gentle jab at the Corinthians in their love affair with knowledge. Remember in 1 Corinthians 8.1, he says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge was something that the Corinthians were particularly impressed by. The knowledgeable person, the wise person. They were the one that garnered the praise in that culture. Paul's point here is that this present knowledge... Even the person gifted, spiritually gifted with knowledge, that, that gift, that knowledge they possess, pales in comparison to the knowledge that they're going to have in eternity. The knowledge that we have now about God's purposes and plans is still incomplete. And that's why we can read God's word and not completely understand it. We can study it again and again and again and continue to find more and more truth. And then we disagree with people. Good and godly men and women disagree on how to interpret Scripture. Well, it's not the Scripture's fault. It's our weakness. It's our inability to understand. But then we will know fully. So even though we might be so impressed with how much we learn, we could take years and years and years of theology classes and all of it, all that amazing knowledge, even if empowered by the Spirit, is going to pale in comparison to the knowledge you're going to have when you see Jesus face to face. In other words, it's not that impressive compared to love, which will endure. Paul says our knowledge of God now is like looking in a mirror. It reflects a genuine image, but it's still just a reflection. It's not face-to-face. And the phrase he uses to describe this reflection is the word dimly. It's a, maybe not the best translation. It, words, it, it, it can be translated an enigma, a puzzle. You look at it, it's just not clear. And that's often like the scriptures. It's just not crisp and clear. Yes, it's accurate. Yes, it's true. But it's not, not everything is as clear as it should be. And that's our experience now with knowledge. We see in a mirror dimly. And as the church is still in development, our understanding of God and His purposes are real yet imperfect and blurry. But when Christ returns, it'll be perfect. We will know even as we are known. For we will see Him face to face versus this reflection. And Paul's wording here is really cool. I think he's taking it from what God says of Moses and his revelation that he gave to Moses in uh, Numbers 12, verses 6 through 8. Check this out. When God says, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. And think of it like an enigma. It's not always obvious what a dream was meant. Remember Joseph and his many dreams. It was genuine revelation, but what that was meant you needed a prophet to interpret, right? So God would give visions and dreams to people. And then he says in verse 7, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth or face to face. Same words, just Hebrews, the difference in the translation. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So what he's saying is, Moses's, the revelation Moses received was superior to just the dreams that God might give somebody. What's his, which is even really more cool, 
is that Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says that the writings of Moses, the revelations Moses gave, were enigmas compared to the gospel as it's now been presented. So the gospel is another step forward in Revelation. Those mysteries are now clear. And then he goes one step further here and he says, the knowledge that we'll have when the church reaches maturity, when Christ returns, is even far more clear than even what we have in the gospel. When progressive revelation will be crystal clear and complete. And so love, unlike this knowledge, is still even superior. Paul continues, he says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, this is referring to the fact that God, we will know God completely, even as he knows us. I can't explain that. I thought about how do you, how do you, how do you explain that? I can't. I don't, I don't understand. At least his will for us, at least his plan and design and purposes will be complete. We, but it does say we will know even as we are known. Amazing. But the greatest amount of knowledge we could achieve this side of heaven pales in comparison to the knowledge that will be fully yours after you rise again. And that doesn't mean that pursuing knowledge now is foolish or vain. It's exactly what we should do. Desire those gifts. Desire to know God's word and his will for your life. But recognizing it's just limited in its impact. It's necessary now for growth, but to boast in it, in our limited understanding, it's a bit silly, especially when you know eventually it's going to be complete. So unlike these spiritual gifts that pass away, Paul gives, in contrast, three things that will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And this is his conclusion. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And the word here for abide, it's the same word from John 15, minnow. These things will remain, just as Christ remains with us. These things will remain with us. Faith, hope, and love. Faith will remain because we will continue to believe and trust God. The difference is, from now, the faith that we have now and the faith we'll have then is, we'll no longer struggle with doubt. We'll no longer struggle with sin and uncertainty. Because at that time, our faith will no longer be the evidence of things unseen. It will be sight. Our faith will be made sight. Likewise, our hope. This is cool. Our hope, we will still have hope when we have our resurrected bodies. The difference being, the hope that we have then is a hope that things will always continue to get better and better. But now, we have hope, but we don't know if tomorrow is going to be better. Tomorrow might be hard. And right now, our hope is rooted in difficult, painful circumstances. Things aren't like we want, and so we hope to get out of these circumstances. But in eternity, we will still have hope, but it will be this hope that continues to remain that gets better and better. Things are only going to get better and better and better in our understanding and relationship with God. So we'll no longer need the gifts designed to build up the body, but we will still possess faith and hope. But then he says the greatest of these three is love. And love is the greatest because it, of all these three things, is what specifically characterizes the nature of God. And that's what's going to dominate our fellowship with them in eternity. As Jonathan Edwards says, heaven is a world of love. And just think about what heaven's going to be like. God dwells in heaven and he is the source of all love. He is the fountain of all love. And his love is pure and perfect and unending. And he is an unchangeable and inexhaustible being. And likewise, his love is unchangeable and inexhaustible. And moreover, there's not going to be any obstacles in heaven that will hinder us from receiving that love. 
Here we get distracted. Here we lack understanding. Here we struggle with sin. But then nothing will impede us from receiving in full and embracing and delighting and rejoicing in the love that he has for us. Moreover, only lovely things exist in heaven. Among all the saints throughout history that will be there, they will all be perfect. And not only that, they will perfectly love. They will perfectly love God and they will perfectly love one another. Their only heart will be to love one another and to love God more. And it'll be just this exponential explosion of love. Love expressed by God toward the saints and the saints toward God and one another. And that love will be perfect in nature. No selfishness at all, but a pure interest in the beloved forever. And that's what God's designed for us. That's why love is greater. And when we love now, we're only, it's, you think of it as a dress rehearsal for eternity. But again, if we have not love, even the greatest things we do are empty. But when we have love, we're living as a mature Christian, a truly mature Christian, what we're designed to be. So what prevents such love from taking place now? I think I want to wrestle through this with you because we, we look at this, particularly the last two sermons in verses 4 through 7, and we see love defined, and it's hard. I mean, the standard that we're called to, love being patient and kind, I have been racked with frustration at seeing how much over the last month I really struggle to love. Even the people I love the most. My love has been exposed as primarily pride and selfishness. And so how do we love like this? Because we don't want to spend our lives in vanity and pride. We want to love and we want to be a church that exists in love. So what hinders us from this love? Well, two things that I think that I thought about, particularly in my own life, are the desire for control and safety on one hand and on the other hand, the desire to be admired and honored. The desire for control and safety and the desire to be admired and honored. Let's look at the first, the desire for control and safety. The desire to protect ourselves from hurt is what keeps us from taking risks in loving other people. It's, it, you can think of this also as the desire to do what you want, what you feel like, to have life the way you want it. But consider, consider this in contrast to the example we have in Christ. Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself, becoming a servant even unto death. And he told the Father, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I mean, he... In regard to the Father. What he said to the Father was, not my will, but your will be done. Paul, likewise, opened his life up to financial ruin. As he talked about in 1 Corinthians 9. He didn't, he didn't expect a paycheck. The Macedonians, who were poor, gave out of their poverty. Martyrs gave their lives. Point is, sacrificial lo- love forces one to let go of control and security. I like what 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. You can't truly love and be afraid. But if you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither things present nor things to come, nor principalities nor rulers, Nothing can separate from your love. There's nothing. You're protected. You're freed to love. For there's no longer need to fear. Likewise, the desire to be admired prevents one from genuinely loving. Every act done, even a godly act, is worthless if self is at the center. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If we have not love, it's worthless. 
And in order to truly love, our aim needs to be others' development, not our admiration. And see, this is the thing. I think so often the things that we do, acts that we do that we think are loving aren't really about other people. They're about us. We're doing it because we want other people to know we love them and therefore admire us for our love or see how skillful we are. But it's really not about them. It's about us. That's not love. Consider the Paul and the apostles. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, To this present hour we hunger and thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's what love turns a person into. That's what it looks like. Now you might be thinking, good night, why would anybody want to love then? If, if that's what the life is going to look like. Well, it will be painful. But the reason you want to love like that is, well, what Paul's already said, love endures. But when people see that sort of love, they begin to understand what love is really supposed to look like. And so you might be the only person in your family that makes these sacrifices and these pains. But you know what? You're giving an example to the rest of your family. And maybe eventually that family will catch on as they see what this sort of love looks like. And then they love. And then that family, having become a family dominated by love and selflessness and care for one another, can now sacrifice as a family for the church. And then that family becomes an example of the church. And then that church, as that love overflows from those individuals into other families, and the church becomes dominated by love then that church becomes an expression of Christ's love for the lost. That's what this looks like. That's why you love. That's why you take the hit. I'll illustrate this in parenting. For instance, if you're worried about your kids disliking you, you're going to, be, you're, you're going to hesitate to discipline because they're not going to like you if you discipline them. They're going to be angry at you. However, so that's the admiration side. However, if you discipline out of your desire for control and security because you're afraid of being ashamed in public by your children, and so you discipline your kids in order to keep you from being ashamed, you're not disciplining out of love, you're disciplining for yourself. The aim of the discipline is to help the kids become mature. It's not to be admired and it's not to be controlling. It's not to make your life easier or to make you appear like an impressive parent. It's not about you. It's about your kid. And this is what's really cool. The aim of parenting, if it's to bring about the maturity and development of the child, it's so that that child would learn to love that they would love and live out 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. That's what, par- that's what parenting is driving at. So that those children might love. And so we, as Christians, we, not desiring admiration, boldly confront sin and error, but we're also willing to be beaten and hated, letting go of safety and control for the sake of others. And think of our examples. Paul never stopped preaching the truth, confronting sin and leading the church. He, ne- he, was, he would go toe-to-toe with false teachers, never backing down. And yet, he gave up safety and control of his own life. Jesus, likewise, was constantly confronting the Pharisees, calling them a whitewashed tombs. Saying they, they're, the, they're children of Satan. And yet, in his boldness in confront, confronting them, he also allowed himself to be handed over to them and crucified. And so, that's the balance. That's, that's the tension we hold. We're bold and truthful, but not to win an argument, per se, but to love people to seeing the truth. And at the same time, we're willing to be trampled upon because we, we trust that God will work through our broken bodies for his exaltation.
And this is the encouragement. Brothers and sisters, we get a taste of what this love looks like, especially when we do great acts of selfless love. You know, like maybe it's sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or uh, preparing to uh, give a testimony from the church. If you, you hate public speaking, that can, be, that can be a major sacrifice. And when you make that sacrifice, you get a taste of the glory and the joy of what that loving act was, was like. But I don't think a person has to go out and do something remarkable to love like this. This is what's really encouraging is you can learn to love in just the smallest aspects of your life. Just choosing to do what's best for another individual and not what you want. Little victories of love are actually massive victories. And this, think about what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 8-13. through They have eternal significance. So that not complaining over the food that you got and encouraging and supporting and serving instead is something that has eternal significance. Unlike so much of the things that we do in this life that will pass away in eternity. And we struggle to love like this. But when we recognize that this is what really matters and we succeed in loving others like this, we are doing something that is truly and eternally impressive. We might, you guys, I'm sure you've, some of you who've lived a while, maybe you've had dreams that you always longed for and you eventually, you you reach that goal. Maybe it was getting married. And then as you, after the wedding was over, you're like, Oh, that's it. Or maybe it was graduation. And, you, and, and that wasn't because the wedding was bad. It just wasn't what you expected. Graduation. This, this thing you had looked forward to your whole life, and then it's just the ceremony was over and it was done. Or maybe it was getting that job, winning that race. That so much of your ambition was fixed upon. And then you got it and it was like, that's it? Brothers and sisters, that's the most of our life. Insignificant and worthless. If we just knew, it's like children who are boasting about winning at Candyland and rejoicing in it, not knowing that it's, it's just a game. Now, it's a big thing for them. Maybe they learn to count or something in the process and that's good for their development. But the adult isn't impressed. And likewise, when we look back on our life, we're not going to be impressed with how many home runs we hit, how much money we made, um, how many places we traveled, how many degrees we earned. We're going to be impressed with, and I think Christ will honor us with, those self-sacrificial acts of love even those little ones, and especially the ones that nobody would know about. Nobody would know about. And as we learn to treasure those and think of those as the victories, rather than these great ambitions we have for our life, we will have a life that echoes in eternity. So where do we start? Start by knowing God's love for you. And that will free you from this craving to be admired and this needing to be safe and in control. And then train yourself to love by embracing the love of God as the antidote for safety, control, and self-worship. And then just start with your families. Love your families by risking for them, releasing control and insistence on doing just what you want. That doesn't mean you'll stop leading your kids. It just means you, you do what's in the best interest of kids, not just what you want. Focus on your spouse's development and needs, not just your own. And as that family grows and becomes dominated by love, then move that to the church. And those families, as they take risks, release their desires, and then they focus on others' development and needs. And again, it just the church builds itself up in love as love becomes the dominating pursuit of every individual 
And the reality is, it starts with you. If you go into the church or you go into your family thinking, man, people just don't love me like they should. Well, that's probably true. But it's got to start somewhere. Why not be the example? And as it catches on, that's, you take the hit for a while. You take the hit. You take the hit. One, because it has eternal significance. But not only that, because eventually, think about what your family could look like. Think about what this church could look like as all learn to live and be driven by love. It's amazing. But if you never take those hits, never willing to let go of your admiration or your control, growth is stunted. And progress and all of your investment ends up becoming worthless. So the reason we should pursue love now is because it's the end that we're seeking. If you don't have love, you're not accomplishing anything anyway. But if you do have love, you're already living like the completed Christian. So let's pray towards that end. Father, we want to be Christ-like. And we, we recognize we're bad at it. We are far more dominated by our ambitions, our own self-craving, desire to be honored and just indulge our pleasures. And we, we're, we, we're not patient and kind. We are jealous. We are boastful. But I pray that you would give us such clarity of your love for us that we would be a church that is driven as a means by love towards that end of love, that you would be praised. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.